I'm John Geraint, John on the Ronda, and this is an exclusive extract from the Great Welsh Anti-Novel. The Great Welsh Anti-Novel by me, John Geraint, is published by Cambria Books, C-A-M-B-R-I-A. It's available from cambriabooks.co.uk and, of course, from all good bookshops. Tonapandi Square is the best place to begin. Pandy Square, the hub of the universe, the still point in the turning world. Because everybody knows this is where Winston Churchill personally commandeered an army submachine gun and sprayed metal death into a crowd of defenceless Ronda miners. That's how Jack Santee always told in the story anyway. Blue murder, bodies in the street, plebiscite. Plebiscide, she meant, massacring the masses, putting down the people's uprising of 1910, or riots, as the Tories insisted on calling them. Tonna pandemonium it was, according to them. But it was them who caused it, the Tories, and Winston bloody Churchill. Churchill. There was blood on his hands, all right. Even if when Jack looked into it properly for that history essay he'd done, it turned out it wasn't Churchill who'd done the actual shooting, that there may not have been much shooting, or any at all. But Churchill did send the troops here. That's a dead cert. There are photos that prove it. Actual photographic evidence in black and white. It was true. Ranks of soldiers, bayonets fixed. The Lancashire Fusiliers and the 18th Hussars. They'd stayed all winter long, broken the strike, butchered the dreams of 12,000 mid-ronda miners, starved them back to work, their families hungry as L, as their banners proclaimed. Killing the kids to force their fathers back to the coalface. You couldn't deny that. Though, of course, the Tories did, and were still denying it all these years later. Well, it all comes down to what you believe in the end, if you want to ask me, Jack reckoned. Arguing about the past, that wasn't something he'd picked up from a term and a half in the sixth form with history's most eccentric history teacher. He was actually a dictator. A great dictator, as we'll see, but a dictator nonetheless. The impulse, the necessity, the fact that you had to argue about history was something Jack had learned through 17 years of being brought up in this valley. Ronda people had a duty to dispute the past, and it went without saying that if conventional wisdom was pro any given historical interpretation, then his auntie, being his auntie, would be auntie. <laughs> Yes, thought Jack proudly, he'd always known this, and always known that Tonopandy Square was the nub of it all. In the gloom of the evening, his eyes were fixed on the corner by the chemists, a facade that looked just the same now, in 1974, as it had in 1910. Nothing lasts except permanence, as his auntie would say. Beyond it, 
silhouetted by the lights of the Pandy Inn, stood a gang of greasers, a modern-day riotous assembly. One of them, Jack thought, looked like James Taylor. James Taylor from Penmice Glass, not the peace-loving American folk rocker, famous for Sweet Baby James. No, this was the James Taylor who taunted and bullied Jack ever since they'd been in Henry Cavan Junior School together. Though come to think of it, Jack's classmate, with his shoulder-length black hair parted in the centre, bore a highly misleading resemblance by now to his transatlantic namesake. The Ronda version was no hippie, though, no peacenik, no cowboy Jesus, more Penegraig Pinochet, or Tonopandi Torquemada. No, that wasn't quite right either. Jack would have to find the phrase, the apposite phrase, and store it up to share with Martin. Now that he really looked at them, Jack recognised some of the others on the threshold of the Pandy Inn, by reputation and nickname, if not personal acquaintance. Mau Mau, Parrot, Rat, Dodo. A couple of years older than him and James Taylor, proper men, dropouts or labourers. More like Hell's Angels than Greasers, Jack thought, though he wasn't totally sure of the difference. Was it just the motorbikes? Either way, two years ago, six months if he was honest, they'd have terrified him. He'd have been cowed by their leather jackets and tattoos, by the thug of woodbines and reefers that hung around them, the crackle of untapped violence, and by his own history of humiliation in the face of physical aggression. Now, though, he knew them better. He understood them as products of the counterculture. Their anger just needed to be focused on a more organised way of breaking the straitjacket of the system. They were his brothers. Even so, Jack was relieved that, thirty yards away, they were safely beyond the range of eye contact. To the left of them, on a far corner of the square, diagonally opposite the picture drome, a side road curved upwards, squeezing past the ramparts of the Naval Club. From there, hemmed in on both sides by terraced houses, it began its implausible ascent to the plateau of Blindclidach, before somehow hauling itself up at angles challenging the perpendicular again to Clidach Vale beyond. Jack couldn't actually see any of this from where he stood at the bus stop on the main valley thoroughfare, but his inward eye pictured the precise degree of every slope and scarp. Like everyone here, he had a natural aptitude for geometry. History was just a bonus. Up that hill, up Court Street Hill, lived honey-haired Lydia Peake. Any moment now, she and Petra Griffiths would come sashaying round the corner by the chemists, just in time to catch the bus to Triorki with him. They'd have tottered down Court Street, winter-coated it against the wind, all dolled up underneath in their party frocks. This might be election day, but nothing, not the ghost of Winston Churchill, not the three-day week, not even a revolutionary watershed in history, nothing could stop a Ronda 18th birthday party.
Lydia and Petra. An odd pairing, Lydia, a whole school year ahead of Petra and Jack, measured, even-tempered, a serious student who'd read a lot. And Petra, one of the self-styled bad girls of the B-form, who'd only got her act together through acting. But they'd have spent the day with each other, talking. Talking, talking, talking. What did girls talk about? It was a mystery. The need to talk, as though nothing had ever really happened, unless it was talked about afterwards. Then, prompted by Petra, they'd have spent the last hour picking out exactly what to wear. Nothing too showy. Outfits that were just right of the moment. Both of them, nevertheless, dressed to impress. Done up to the nines. They'd have the boys at sixes and sevens, especially by the time they'd had one over the eight. Tupsin, Jack scolded himself. Stop it. This word play, this child's play, had to be not extirpated, but reined in. Jack could hear his father's voice admonishing him. When I was a child, I spake as a child. No wonder he'd got called names from his earliest years in grammar school. The catchphrase kid, he had an endless stock of them. The word-mad Welsh-mad maniac. Unlike Martin, unlike almost everyone, he'd dropped French and chosen Camraig in Form 3. The Prince of Repetition. The same joke or inane pun, recycled over and over, just occasionally given a slight new twist. The Prince of Repetition. The same joke. No, no, you've just done that one. But it was 1974 now, and he was in the sixth form. O-levels to A-levels. The biggest jump of all, Dad had warned him. Comparatively, moving on to university was papish. Not that Dad had actually gone to university. Kalian was a college, a teacher training college back then, just after the war, the one that Churchill got his glory from. Dad had avoided national service too. He was a conchie, a conscientious objector, but on religious, not political grounds. From what Jack had experienced so far, his father was right. For the first time, schoolwork was a stretch, a struggle. But struggle was good. It would help him attain the higher plane of seriousness, the gravitas he associated with Martin. Help him, even if he couldn't accept his father's faith, to abide by the wisdom of the biblical exhortation his father was always pressing on him. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And Tonopandi Square was the best place to begin. Here, now, on this last day of February, polling day, election day, with the weight of history pressing all around, and the prospect of a new chapter in the long march of progress starting before another day dawned. Jack didn't want to miss the frisson of Petra and Lydia's arrival, that first glimpse of them rounding the corner. And Catherine... Catherine might be with him too, despite... Forget that, she wouldn't be. But he sensed the larger weight of the moment. He knew that he ought to fix it, this time, this place, this whole scene in his mind. Its historic significance. He turned away from the greasers, or hell's angels, to look back down De Winton Street, down the valley, beyond the public library, down the main road's gently sloping tarmac. Library and tarmac 
with the sounds in his head. An R missing from one, added to the other. That was how he'd always said them, like most people here. It wasn't long since he'd realised that not everyone in the world did. The Great Welsh Anti-Novel by me, John Geraint, is published by Cambria Books, C-A-M-B-R-I-A. -A. It's available from cambriabooks.co.uk and of course from all good bookshops and you can listen to me reading another exclusive extract next time in John on the Ronda <laughs>